Hello, everyone. Welcome to We Had the Talk. My name is Kiana Brooks. And my name is Jasmine Brooks. And together, we are your hosts of We Had the Talk, a podcast focused on encouraging others to have the tough conversations that people typically shy away from. Working to uncover biases and challenge the narrative, one conversation at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of We Had the Talk. Today, we have with us the incredible Daoud Moomin. Daoud is an activist and all-around incredible human being who works to foster an environment for action informed by education. Yes, thank you, Daoud, for joining us today. Y'all gassing me up. Thank you so much for having (laughs) me. I'm really excited to be talking to you guys. Thank you. So the title of today's episode is We Had the Talk About Being Black in a Pandemic. And we really wanted to focus on what this past year has been like for Black people. Specifically, we understand that this pandemic has disproportionately impacted Black people. Whether we are considering infection and hospitalization or death rates, whether we're considering unemployment, or even just the impact of stay-at-home orders and social distancing guidelines. This, combined with continued anti-Black racism makes you really the best person for us to talk to about it. Um, And, you know, we're really looking forward to having your perspective. You've seen firsthand the impact of systemic racism on our society, and you live it every day as a Black man in this country. So why don't you take a moment to properly introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. Um, Hi, everyone. My name is Daoud Moomin. I am a 19-year-old organizer, um, poet, and artist here from Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, I've been organizing since I was about 13, 14 years old, um, just, you know, running around water bottles, making signs, you know, doing my little volunteering stuff. And um, really, I came about leadership and um, public service um, because, you know, being Black in America, being Muslim in America, um, being a non-white privileged person in America has definitely um, made me a product of these structural violences and injustices. So um, what better call to serve than to serve my community and be doing this work? So I'm really excited to have this talk with you guys. Thank you so much. So for those of you who tuned in last week, we spoke about not being Black enough and some of the challenges that come with receiving labels based on your skin tone. So again, this week, we wanted to discuss what COVID in 2020 in particular has been like for Black people and how we can promote healing for Black people as a result of some of these challenges. So with that being said, Daoud, we have a question for you. We understand, as you mentioned, that you've been an activist and really been so involved in your community since such a young age, um, even 13. And we just like to know more about your motivation for protesting and the larger structural issues that you feel you are protesting for. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, like you mentioned, Kiana, I've been organizing since I was about um, 14 years old. Um, when I was 13, I lost a um, class, a former classmate, a friend of mine um, to gun violence. And um, that moment for me really was the, the the precipice for change. You know, I was at a moment in my very premature life where um, I, I my innocence was broken, right? I, I realized that to be Black in America means to recognize these problems from a very young age, right? When um, we as Black people from a very young age recognize that we're different, that we're, um, we're not privileged, that we don't have the same access, that we don't have the same um, equitability, right? Um, so I spent a year just frustrated and overwhelmed with these systems, right? Because, you know, if you think for even just a minute how big and intricate these problems are, 
you get scared, right? You think about how much there is to do, how much harm has been caused. You know, there's over 400 um, years, four centuries of history that has to be avenged, you know, avenged by us as activists and um, Black people in America. So I spent a year just lost, you know, um, angry, sad, hopeless, right? You know, it was when I was about 14 years old. Black Lives Matter Utah finally started picking up some steam and some work, and I finally felt like I had a place to call home, a place where I didn't have to explain myself, a place where I didn't have to define my trauma, a place where I got to just be a kid that was um, respected, but also helped and taught and mentored and nurtured to uh, grow up as a Black man, like you mentioned. Um, So ever since then, I've really just made it my mission to address these problems in a variety of ways, right? Protesting, policy, through art, through activism, through poetry, through so many different avenues, right? And so many different uh, ways. I see activism as a very multifaceted approach to justice, right? There's no one way to be an activist. All of us have different roles in this work. I definitely will say I've had mine at the the front of the stage, you know, at the mic, um, just really being proud of my story and my voice and the life that I'm fighting to avenge. You know, the larger structural systems that we're tackling are an intersection, right, between patriarchy, masculinity, colonialism, and capitalism, and how we as Black people manifest in the world, right? Just thinking about the works of Angela Davis, where intersectionality is not just a laundry list of our identities, but it's... um, a theoretical framework of understanding how we manifest in this world, right? Um, Between our sex, our gender, our sexuality, our income, our class. Um, So that's kind of, you know, and I'm I'm only 19 years old and I have a lifetime of this work to go, but that's the work that I'm fighting for is for Black people, right? For, um, because like you mentioned, anytime a disaster or a pandemic or injustice happened, the person that's most affected is Black people, right? Not only Black people, but Black women, poor Black women, right? And we, um, and I think that's what we have to start talking about is how um, Black people truly are at the epicenter of injustice. And that that's why we have to continue this work. Wow, that was very powerful. Thank you for that answer. You know, and, and I really just appreciate it, especially the part where you said just activism comes in so many forms and yeah. from so many roots, right? And and I feel like especially with this pandemic where we've been told to stay at home, where we've been told, you know, to avoid large gatherings and things like that. But then at the same time, so many events have come to national attention in ways like surrounding racism, right? Like so many events surrounding racism have come to national attention in ways that we haven't seen before. And so now you see just names being yelled across the world for change in how Black people are treated, especially by law enforcement, right? And so it's like you you combine that pressure to be involved and to speak up and to be a part of such a big movement right now. But then you combine that with COVID and with how scary and, and how hard it might be. So, you know, I feel like I struggled with that a little bit of how do I still get involved and still show support while not risking my life or the the lives of those around me, right? And so I, I really yeah. do appreciate that because I and I remember being in Houston, like I live in Houston and George Floyd, you know, I went to the memorial and that was my first, like, I was like, wow, this is like, I saw George Floyd's body in the mm-hmm. coffin and I'm just like, this is why 
Mm-hmm. So I, I hear you. Like it's just it comes in so many forms, but wow, it, it's yeah. Yeah. And to hear that you're only 19 and already so involved and you've lived such a life already. And it's, it's really, it's representative of the black experience in America in a lot of ways, because we have to go through things at such a younger age than our white counterparts, our non-black counterparts. So to see how you've been able to, you know, take that and do better and do well with it is really inspiring. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and and like you guys were mentioning that, you know, this this is activism, right? These conversations that fuel the narratives that we need to be talking about, right? But also, um, I always think about activism and um, a lot of people see activism as this ambiguous injustice that we're trying to solve. No, like, you know, Jasmine said, these are real lives that need to be fought for and avenged, right? But also more than that, we need to be fighting for these lives before they're lost. And I think that's the sort of work that we're all trying to do. Absolutely. And so how do you feel the disproportionate outcomes that we've seen with COVID-19, some of the ones that we mentioned earlier, um, with Black mm-hmm. people is related to larger systemic racism and, and some of the roots of what you were saying that you're fighting for. Absolutely. You know, I think about how Black people in America and Black people globally face a unique struggle, right? Anti-Blackness in itself is, is, is a scarier version of, you know, this quote-unquote racism, right? Anti-Blackness is about quite literally the effect that Blackness has on not only our livelihood, but our longevity, our life expectancy, our health outcomes, you know. Black people are so much more uh, likely um, to face health issues, right? When my mother gave birth to me, she wasn't even insured, right? Thinking about, and I was kid number eight, right? And um, thinking about how access to healthcare, maternal fetal mortality, right? And and how Black women at the hands of doctors are dying four times faster than their white counterparts. Um, so yes, COVID-19 was just an example, but also an, an unearthing of all of these um, systemic issues, right? When we think about, like Jasmine mentioned, stay-at-home orders are not feasible because for black people because we have to go to work, right? We have to think about our children. We have to think about our parents, right? When I was protesting, I would not get near my parents, right? Because the, just for the fact that I might get them sick, right? And they're both immunocompromised. So I had to just stay away as much as possible. And that made it really inconvenient. But also being in college, I also have to stay away from them because I can't risk that, that, that health outcome. And you think about um, forcing kids to stay at home, right? Who is watching kids when their single parents are going to work, right? Uh, are we offering childcare? Are we offering um, testing that is able, that is fast enough, right? And, and oftentimes Black people, especially during a day like MLK Day and Black History Month are, you know, heroicized, right? We're, we're super people, right? We're, we're stronger, we're better, but also we're dying faster. We're also getting killed faster, right? And we shouldn't live stories of fairy tales, right? We should live stories of of empowerment, of of livelihood, right? And um, I think about how we think about black women as oh, you know, our strong black women, but we but we're killing them, right? But we're not standing up for them. We're not providing the resources and tools for them. So I think that COVID nineteen the the disproportionate outcomes um, is definitely related to systems of inaccessibility to education, inaccessibility to healthcare, inaccessibility to adequate and safe working um, environments. Right when I when I mention education, right, we think about how 
to fight a pandemic, you have to know what you're fighting, right? And oftentimes black people are not given the tools and the resources to know what that is, right? When I have to spend a lot of my time explaining to my mom, what does social distancing do? What does, you know, an N59 mask do compared to a cloth mask, right? But also the vaccine, right? Um, I just recently was asked to be a, a community health fellow for Salt Lake to explain this to marginalized communities because oftentimes we're not given the resources to know how to help ourselves, right? And to, to do that work for ourselves. And in terms of healthcare, you got you got to think about so many people, including myself when I was younger, that you can't get sick, right? It's not financially feasible. Mm-hmm. And in what world is that actually a legitimate concern, right? And in, in what world should that be a concern that you have to avoid a physical ailment because you can't you can't handle the financial ailment. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's that's kind of the what comes to my mind. Yeah, I mean, to the point, I think that really stood out to me was about how we lift up Black people around these specific events, MLK Day, Black History Month in particular, but fail to recognize how poorly we're still being treated. And I think this past year has been a pivotal point where that has finally started to change, where we're starting to see the conversation, the narrative changing on a day-to-day basis. A, because we've been given so much opportunity, unfortunately, over the past year to fight for our rights and to call attention to the grave injustices that we face in the society. But also, you know, with the pandemic, with these statistics unsurfacing of how quickly we are dying and being killed, it's, there's no way to avoid it. And so in some ways, it's moving the needle of the conversation further. And to that, at least we can continue to look forward optimistically. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, But, you know, to shift gears here a little bit, something else that really came to fruition in 2020 was the whole idea of defund the police. And Mm -hmm. so Jasmine and I have been talking about it, but we really just kind of want to get your perspective on that and how there's, to your point, so much misinformation and miseducation that goes on around some of the things that we are fighting for. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. When I was, you know, when I was younger, my mom was always like, education, education is so important. And I was just like, you know what, mom, you sound a little annoying about this whole education thing, right? And it's just like, you're kind of, kind of making it boring and it's like and for so long I didn't understand the significant impact that education has not only on our grades in school but in our daily lives right um I believe that education gives us the words and the and the names to understand what worlds we're fighting for and against right um, I remember I was having a conversation with Patrice Cullors one of the founders of Black Lives Matter and she said I did not believe that in my lifetime I would hear defund the police become a mainstream household conversation, right? She was like, when I was organizing 2012, 2013, I did not think that we were going to be having this conversation seriously. She said, after my, when I was off this earth, I thought that's when it was going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. And I think about, like you mentioned, Kiana, we've, this past year, we've had so many traumas to fight against and fight through as a community that it's given us, that we've had to pick up the pace, right? Then we've had to move the needle faster and stronger and more effectively. Um, I just want to be clear. I wholeheartedly support defunding the police and abolishing to police. And it, and it's, 
so many reasons. One, the the historical implications of the police are atrocious, right? They're violations of not only human rights, but Black lives, right? Police Policing started as a way to catch slaves, right? Policing started as a way to undermine the work of the Underground Railroad of the people that were trying to leave plantations and go to the north, right? So we have to think about the origin itself is so evil, right? And it has not even been addressed, but instead it's been transformed into this into this mechanism of safety, right? Policing itself is quite literally mutually exclusive to black safety, right? Because policing itself is a detriment to our safety. It's a detriment to our lives. It's a detriment to our life expectancy, right? Where quite literally there is science to prove that our lives are shortened because of the existence of the police, you know? Um, And I think about how as it's transformed, policing has not been about safety, but instead it's been about punishment, right? It's been about um, incarceration. It's been about imprisonment. It's it's been about... um, um, fatality. And I think that's what we have to understand is, um, we hear this phrase a lot, right? The most safe communities don't have more police, they have more resources, right? Mm-hmm. The most safe communities, right, are where the police officers live, right? And, and, and they and they go to ha- they go to home at night and with their kids and with their families, but then they wake up in the morning and put that on their badge and then they go police Black people in a community that they don't live in, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I also think about how um, policing oftentimes takes away from other mechanisms of safety, right? We have to think about mental health, right, as as such an important element of this necessity of policing, right? Why do people that are going through mental health crises or mental health emergencies being confronted by someone that is we- weaponized with a gun, right? When there are professionals that have gone through this education and gone through this learning that are equipped to handle these emergencies. There was... Um, a kid by the name of Lyndon that um, recently passed away in Salt Lake City, uh, I believe 14 years old. Um, and he had a mental health emergency, was killed by a police officer because his mom couldn't afford to call the mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I also think about how, you know, defunding the police is about an investment in safety and a divestment from violence. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I always use the example of fossil fuels and in the environment is the comparison of the police to black people. Right. Fossil fuels are the police and we're the environment that's being ruined consistently at, at our expense, but for the profit of whom private prisons of, of the United States government of, um, you know, police unions and things of that. That nature. So I definitely want to talk a little bit more about my thoughts, but um, yeah, I think defunding the police is, is, is consequential to um, the, the, the safety of Black people. I love that answer. And I, and I definitely want to preface as well that I, I agree. Same <laughs> yes. here, right? Yeah. And, and I'm not sure, sure. If you know, but I, I am in mental health right now myself. Mm-hmm. I'm in a PhD program for clinical psychology. And that's one of the core reasons why I believe that as well, right? Is you you look at these events, you look at even the Capitol, right? What happened at the Capitol just not too long ago. But what happens when white people storm a national building with guns? Does do the police shoot anyone? Right. And, and, you know, that that thing that went out and that, that became viral, it was about we're not asking you to kill white people like you kill us. We're asking you to not kill us like you don't kill white people. 
you know, and, and it's, it's just so crazy that those are the conversations we're having about the people that are supposed to keep our nation safe. And I love the analogy that you said about just honestly, like when we think about the police and who they actually protect or what their duty is, yeah, it's the opposite of keeping us safe. It's the opposite of making us feel like we're protected. We are being told as eight-year-old kids, sometimes younger, that when these people pull us over, put your hands on the dash and look and look away, right? Like, it's like we're being taught that to the people that are supposed to protect us. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I also, I also even think I want to even examine that phrase supposed to protect, right? That like, Mm -hmm. we've been so conditioned to believe and, and to be confused by that phrase, because, you know, we thought you were entrusted with this, but instead, no, this is again, a recreation of white supremacy that we must be at the hand and mercy of the police that they get to pick and choose who lives and dies right but that's all in the name of safety that's all in the name of serve and protect right but it's serve and protect the few right it's serve and protect the wealthy the white the elite right it's not to protect kids that live in low-income areas it's not to protect disproportionately black and brown men in low-income areas right they don't have regards and i also think about how when we talk about policing and it's like i thought they were supposed to stop white supremacy and i'm just like you're asking white supremacy to stop white supremacy i'm confused here Mm. you know and it's like and that might be a little bit you know but it's the truth and And it's like, and that's the reality is like, you know, some people were like, imagine if these people were black, we don't have to imagine summer 2020 exists, right? Mm -hmm. LA riots exist, right? History exists, you know? So we don't have to imagine what it means. I don't have to imagine when a cop almost fractured my hip this past summer, you know? I don't have to wonder what it's like. I know what it's like, right? That is the lived experiences. And I think that's What's so oftentimes shocking to us, you know, and shocking to white people when they're like, how could they get away with this? And I'm like, these systems are for you, right? Policing is not about protecting us. It's about protecting you from us, right? It's about continued gentrification. It's about continued segregation. It's about legalizing and upholding Jim Crow. And that's what's so important in these conversations is that we have to really analyze who are the police actually serving, right? And what are they taking money away from, right? What are they taking resources away from, right? Mm-hmm. There's no reason as to why police officers are better equipped than teachers, right? There's no reason why police officers are better equipped than doctors, right? There's no reason why police officers are better equipped than, you know, paramedics or firefighters, because shout out to them. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and I think that's what's really important is like, is like what is safety, right? Specifically for black people, what does that mean? And we can deconstruct how the police quite literally are not synonymous with safety for us. Right. Exactly like you said, right? Like what training do they have in any of those domains? But yet they are the first responders. What yeah. training in mental health? What training in de-escalation? What training in racial biases are they getting? Mm -hmm. in saving lives, right? Like base CPR. And, and, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say that there's no training, right? But it's like compared to doctors, like you said, or compared to mental health professionals, but where are the resources that we're allotting to those fields? 
Where are the, mm-hmm. and, and that's where it's like, you know, we're not asking to take away and to create a system like the purge, right? Like we're asking to invest in a mental health police. We're asking to invest in changing these communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's yeah. so interesting to think about because from my perspective, right, I, my main question is why are you so afraid of defunding the police? Why is that so scary to some people, right? Like the whole notion of, oh my goodness, how would we function without police? That alone is privileged in and of itself because mm-hmm. for you to be afraid of not having someone to protect you means that you feel protected. <laughs> and that, per- that is a privilege that so many Black people don't have. When I think of the police, I do not think I am being protected. I think I need to avoid eye contact when I walk through the streets of New York with a policeman. I think I need to go out of my way to seem very composed and put together if I'm out on the street at night. I need to go out of my way to make sure I am not calling attention to myself. That's what I think of when I think of being in New York City and interacting with the police. I do not think of running up to a policeman to ask what street I'm on. (laughs) That's not something that I would like to do if I can avoid it. So when for us to think about the defunding of the police and our initial thought is, you know, okay, what is, what resources are we funding to your point? Where are we putting that money? Where would we like to see it go? Whereas a lot of white people have the privilege of saying, oh, but what would happen if that security was lost. And I think that's the issue. That's the problem is that people are valuing their own safety over recognizing the fact that so many of us aren't feeling safe. Absolutely. And I also think about, you know, why not invest in preventing crime than reacting to it? right? One of the largest contributions to crime is socioeconomics, right? It's not this random bazaar at birth. I'm going to, I'm going to kill people. I'm going to cause terror in my communities. No, there's parents that have to rob convenience stores. There's people that have to break into pharmacies for insulin. You know, there's people that have to do these things, right? And you have to even think about, right? People are like, well, what about, well, what about domestic violence? I'm like, what is, First of all, 40% of cops are domestic abusers. And second of all, how is a cop going to stop domestic abuse, right? He's going to come and then what, right? And then the courts won't even handle that correctly, right? And then women continue to be in the cycle of abuse, right? And we also even talk about, um, oh, who's going to enforce laws? And it's just like, let's talk about enforcements of laws, right? Are they being enforced fair? Are they being enforced correctly? You know, when we think about, I I was reading the other day and I read this thing about how someone said a crime that's um, punished by a fine is is a crime for the poor, right? Is a crime for someone that can't get out of it. Right. It's 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 someone that can't, you know, speed because they can't afford the ticket. They can't afford the increase in insurance. Right. But rich people can do that. So I also think about going back to that conversation of um, investing in a prevention of crime is very important. Investing in community based prevention is really important, even in the conversation of gun violence. Right. Is very similar that police don't know how to handle gun violence. Right. When we think about mass shootings, oftentimes it's because of the lack of 
execution by police officers, right? When we think about Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the school the school officers didn't even weren't able to even stop that, right? And we think about shootings at malls, we think about shootings in our communities. Oftentimes cops are useless, right? I'm gonna say that flat out. Cops are useless. And so we have to start thinking about, especially like Jasmine mentioned, we have to invest in people like her, right? We have to invest in people that are able to handle and prevent crime, right? That are able to handle and prevent crises, that are able to prevent and handle um, situations that the police are just not, right? We think about how, why are the police tasked with um, responding and handling to houseless people, right? One of the most vulnerable communities in our society. And we're asking one of the most violent institutions to go to their encampments, right? To go to their tents and to and to handle their um, situations that are so um, delicate and that are so intricate and require expertise that they just don't have. So I think it's just really important to ask. Honestly, we have to ask the question, what the fuck do the police do? No, then we can go from there. Honestly, right? And like, I want to preface if there are any listeners that are policemen, or if there are any listeners who are related or closely have close ties to policemen, don't get defensive from what we're saying. This is a 19, 21, 24 year old people in, in your nation that are speaking like this, right? The, these are words genuinely coming from us, youth that we are scared of you. We don't feel protected. Use that as motivation for change and not defensiveness and not not saying, oh, we're spreading hate and lies. This is real. Mm -hmm. This is how we feel. This is how millions across the country feel. So thank you guys for, for being able and for engaging in such a raw conversation that has the potential to create such backlash. But you know, that's why I want to put that preface out there and encourage people to view it that way, not as an attack, but as a, as a reason for change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Absolutely. you know, moving into the last question that we have for you today, how do you think that people who are, might still be afraid to go to large gatherings who, you know, whether that's because of COVID or everything that we've just discussed about the police, right? So for people mm-hmm. who, who might still be afraid to go to these large protests, how can they get involved in fighting for racial justice? And how can people who are allies get involved? Absolutely. Um, Like going to a point that was previously mentioned that um, organizing and activism is multifaceted, right? We need educators, we need critics, right? We need thinkers, we need artists, right? We need organizers, right? Um, We need people that you know, have a way with words, have a way with um, inspiration, action, whatever that may be, um, because this movement has a place for everyone that's in it for the right reason, right? Um, So I would say, you know, if you're not going out into the streets physically, right, because even that has that conversation of ableism, right? We can't, no, not everyone can go on the streets, right? People are sick or some people, some people are disabled. So we have to think about what are ways that we need to make sure that this movement is inclusive to everyone, right? I always say, you got to start out with education, right? Who is educating and who needs to be educated, right? Are we having these conversations at home? Are we having these conversations with friends? Are we cutting off racist friends, right? Are we um, engaging with an audience of people that are here in good faith to talk about these problems and talk about these issues, right? Um, 
And then are we reading books? Are we investing in our own education, our own um, understanding of this world? Um, Italian philosopher Polo Freire in his book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, basically argues that um, a lack of education is one of the greatest tools the oppressor has, right? Because we cannot fight against a world we can't even name, right? Mm -hmm. We can't even fight it. We can't fight against institutions that we don't know exist, right? We can't fight against institutions that we don't know how they operate, right? So invest in your education, read the works of Angela Davis, Asada Shakur, Ida B. Wells, Bell Hooks, right? So many people, Frantz Fanon, right? There's so many people that you can just start reading, right? And, and, and really give yourself the ability to have these conversations because sometimes dialogue is hard because we don't know enough, right? But that's an opportunity for growth. That's an opportunity for curiosity. I think that's the most, I think this is the first, first step. If you're in this fight, you have to be an educator and you have to be a teacher, but you also have, you have to be a student, right? I always think about how I'm a student of this movement. I'm a student of those who have come before me. Um, the second thing is um, we're, we're in a digitized world. As much as that might be a problem or be a good thing, we live in a digital world, right? So start finding people that, have been doing this work, find people that have resources, find people that can get out, right? And 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 digitally organize, right? Does that mean hosting conversations like this? Does that mean hosting um, podcasts? Does that mean having a YouTube series? What does that look like, right, digitally? Because it's such an important tool for our success. I've learned so, so much from just my friends online, right? And and what they've done. They're, they're my besties and I haven't met them in real life before. So I would say that's the second thing. And the third way I would definitely mention is um you have to just be curious right is that um is that through art is that through language is that through organizing what does what does it mean for you to be curious about an answer so i think that's the most important part and a, a fight is only as strong as its education right and it's i'm not talking about college i'm not talking about brick and mortar i'm talking about what do you know right because I always say ignorance is not bliss. It's it's dangerous, right? And to not, you know, and we don't want to be elitist because ignorance for some people is reality, but ignorance is a tool of white supremacy. Ignorance is a tool to um, uphold these systems. So um, that's what I would say. And also in terms of allies, I got a little, I got a little duelist for y'all. Um, I think number one, it's a commitment to no praise, no reward, just hard work right? You are not here because you deserve to be celebrated. You're here because you have to undo the problems that those who have come before you have caused, right? And oftentimes we hear people, but, you know, I'm not my ancestors, but you are a product of them. You know, you are, you live in their privilege, you bask in their glory, you know? So you have to undo this work. Second, it's education, right? You have to be a student of those that you want to be serving, that you want to show up for. Um, and lastly, it's consistency. This is not a one summer allyship, right? This is a lifelong commitment to this work, right? But it's also a lifelong commitment to undoing the comfort and privilege you live in, right? It's 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 a lifelong commitment to giving up power. It's a lifelong commitment to giving up supremacy. It's a lifelong, you know, uh, commitment of giving up tools for oppression, Right. And I think that's that's the biggest things that I have to say to allies. Yeah, I mean, that's perfect. I think that's so important um, and something that we talk about a lot. But some things that stood out to me that you said were 
especially in reference to allies, is that how we are asking, we are actively asking our allies to Mm -hmm. give up something, right? And I think that's so important because a lot of people, you know, they want to help and they, they want to do what they can, whatever that may mean. But a lot of times they don't even understand that we're really asking for more than that. We are asking for them to give up their place in society, their comfort, their privilege, and to take a stand against it. And that is that is what is so difficult about the situation is that with the situation at the Capitol, we are relying on people who are benefiting from the existing system to change it. And that's what's so hard. And that's what makes progress so slow is that if white people were the ones suffering from this system, they would be jumping at the chance to change it. Mm -hmm. But this isn't impacting them, obviously, in the same way that it's impacting us. And we are the minorities. So I think that's just the biggest um, takeaway here. One of the many takeaways is that we want more and we need more in order to help move the needle. So if you really want to be an ally, if you really want to help with change, we have to disrupt so much more than you can imagine. Yeah. And I also always, you know, I always think about how um, Black people, we've got this, right? We are going to win this fight. It's a matter of are you with us or against us, right? We're not going to beg white people to give up their privilege. We're going to come and take it from you. You know, we're going to, so it's it's your choice, right? If you want to be an ally in this fight or not. But just at the end of the day, remember that if you're an ally or not, you're not you're no longer going to hold the same power that you've always held on to right so that's also an important thing is i want to empower black people to understand their own power right and understand their own ability to organize their own ability to fight for liberation because white people are not essential to this fight right um are, are allies an important thing to have absolutely but are they essential absolutely not right mm-hmm. because for four centuries we've had each other's back and we're going to continue doing that with or without. Thank you so much. This has been an incredible conversation. I can't believe we're at um, almost 45 minutes here. I feel like we could continue talking forever. And, and it's <laughs> For just days, yeah. I was like, your passion, your experiences, everything. It's, it's just been incredible hearing just everything that you've had to say here. And I feel like as Kiana was getting into some of the key takeaways that we've learned from this conversation is just how powerful racism and systemic injustice is in terms of being a social determinant of health, in terms of being one of the major reasons we're seeing the COVID-19 outcomes we are today. And just with that and with all of the controversy surrounding the police and all of the topics that we've talked about here today, just how much we still have left to fight for. To not get mm-hmm. comfortable just because, you know, more overt forms seem to be decreasing. Because at the end of the day, we still have people dying at the hands of police that are unarmed. Mm-hmm. We still are seeing the outcomes we're seeing with COVID. We still have a president that sends the National Guard to essentially gun us down for protesting mm-hmm. for our rights, but yet allows mm-hmm. and, and condones armed protests in the Capitol building during a sacred moment of counting election votes. So, so we still have so much to fight for. So much, yes. And, you know, as we learned today, being an activist can occur in so many ways. But at the end of the day, one of the main things that you called out was that it starts with doing your research. 
and putting in the effort to best serve not only your community, but those of those less fortunate than you. And uh, (laughs) yeah. And so that's really something that I took from this conversation and something that I look forward to our listeners taking away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think for me, um, I sat with this phrase, you know, that our history is radicalizing, right? What does that mean, right? And that means that as we learn more, we get more angry because we realize more, right? We learn more, we recognize more that these systems are just not cutting it. These systems no longer serve us. So we have to do something, right? When you read books like, you know, Beloved by Toni Morrison, when you read The Body Found an Apology, you know, all of these different types of books, you leave angry, you leave frustrated, but that itself is needs to be turned into power. That needs to turn into, you know, because, you know, they say the history is, history is radicalizing the present, you know, it's powerful because the future is liberating, right? And I think that's how we have to think about this is that if we don't, we, we can't fight if we don't know, right? We can't do if we don't learn. And I think that's but I encourage everyone and myself to be committed to for the rest of our lives to just always learn more. Well, honestly, that's perfect. I would usually we have a call to action for our listeners at the end of every episode, but I think this whole episode has been a call to action. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add, but you know, we are just so grateful to have you on this episode. Thank you so much. I, I, I definitely call action is always important, but I always, I also always like to end these type of conversations with just, you know, we're going to get there, right? With uh, the, 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 this fight seems daunting. This fight seems overwhelming. This fight seems damn near impossible sometimes, but to have hope is revolutionary, right? To have, to imagine a better world for ourselves is an activism, right? To dream, right? Oftentimes black people are stripped of imagination, right? Because we don't believe that we're deserving of a fairy tale happily ever after, right? That's what we have to hold on to, right? The, the, the kid in us that that thinks the world is the best place because we can make it that way. So I, I think everyone has a part in that fight, but everyone has the responsibility of inspiring one another and being there for one another. And most of all, treating one another with kindness because this is a hard fight. We're going to make mistakes, but we have to continue strong. Thank you so much for your time today. I think that was incredible. I think ending with hope and positivity amongst all this is vital, like you said. So thank you so much again. And it was a pleasure having you on We Had the Talk. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Remember everyone, ignorance thrives in silence. Whereas understanding stems from conversation. So So start start talking. Again, my name is Kiana Brooks. And my name is Jasmine Brooks. And we are your hosts of We Had The Talk. Remember to check out our Instagram page for some bonus content this week as Jasmine and I break down the details of this episode. See you next week for the fifth episode of We Had The Talk, another engaging episode entitled We Had The Talk About Being Black and Gen Z. Talk soon.